0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Quasi Kwatan took a gigantic political gamble this week when he announced a £45 billion tax-cutting package, the biggest in half a century.
2: But I'm not going to cut the additional rate of tax today, Mr. Speaker. I'm going to abolish it altogether. From April the 23rd, we will have a a single higher rate of income tax of 40%. This will simplify the tax system and make Britain more competitive. It will reward enterprise and work. It will incentivize growth. It will benefit the whole economy and the whole country.
1: Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times. With me, Sebastian Payne. This week, we'll be unpacking the mini-budget that was not so many in scale and ambition. We'll be examining those tax cuts for top earners, which you heard the Chancellor discuss at the beginning, the efforts to stimulate growth and the adverse market reaction. Our experts are on hand to explain all. Political editor George Parker and economics editor Chris Giles. And later, we'll be looking at the Trust Government's other major announcement this week, the ABCD plan to fix the health service. Our health editor, Sarah Neville, will explain whether it will see the NHS through a particularly difficult winter, while our science editor, Clive Cookson, looks at whether we should be worried about COVID again and is the UK losing its focus on science, research and development. Thank you all for joining. Liz Truss has been Prime Minister for just over two weeks, but has already made it clear she is not planning to have a quiet, easy time in office. Following the end of the official mourning period after the death of Queen Elizabeth II, the new Prime Minister has pushed out a series of announcements ahead of the party conference season, none bigger than Friday's fiscal event. Truss's ideological soulmate, Kwasi Kwarteng, delivered what was essentially his first budget that was designed with the City of London in mind. Along with the top rate of tax being slashed, the banker's bonus cap is being scrapped and the 2024 cut in income tax is being brought forward a year. Speaking to MPs, the Chancellor explained why he cares so much about tax.
2: The tax system is not simply about raising revenue for public services. Vitally important. Though that is, tax determines the incentives across our whole economy. And we believe that high taxes reduce incentives to work, they deter investment, and they hinder enterprise. As my right honourable friend, the Prime Minister, has said, we will review the tax system to make it simpler, more dynamic and fairer for families. And we're taking that first step today. Well, George
1: Parker, welcome back as always. Now, I picked that clip to start us off this discussion because you have Kwasi Kwarteng, the Chancellor, talking about my friend, the Prime Minister. And this very much feels like a joint project between Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng. And what do you make of it? It really is quite the political move. It's a very,
0: very bold, some would say incredibly risky budget. Let's call it a budget. I mean, it was was the biggest fiscal event we've seen, hasn't it, Chris, For 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 a long, long time and basically you go back to that famous book Britannia Unchained written 10 years ago authored partly by Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss and here you see them putting into practice the ideas they've talked about for so long basically slashing taxes slashing regulation in the belief that that will generate the growth they need to fund public services and to eventually pay down the debt but it's a massive economic gamble but also a hugely political gamble because as Kwasi Kwating admitted, the results of this won't be seen overnight. A general election is due in under two years' time, probably. And in the meantime, you're going to see an awful lot of market instability. And they've taken some really bold political moves. It's almost like they've looked at a shelf of policy ideas, marked dangerous, do not touch, and grabbed them all and brought them down. And you know, And the interesting thing is, it's quite bracing in a way. We're so used to reporting on politicians who triangulate, they look at the focus groups, look at the opinion polls. These are politicians doing what they really believe in. Now, whether it works is a totally different question.
1: And I think Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng have said, George, that they are happy to do unpopular things. And I think that was actually the key part of this fiscal event. Well, Chris Charles, it's great to have you on as always. So the scale of this thing is what struck me, as we've said. £45 billion in tax cuts, adding £72 billion to the UK's debt pile. The Biggest shake-up of the tax system in 50 years. So, as we were saying, this really is a landmark economic event, unlike any budget for
3: an awful long time. And it's bigger than you've just described, actually. So because we haven't got the increased cost of borrowing in that. So the 72 billion is just for the next six months. That's for winter. We've still got the energy price guarantee for households at least, is through the following winter there'll be something else for business, and then those tax cuts in. So the amount of borrowing next year and into into the medium term will be absolutely enormous. It's very, very unlikely that debt will be falling as a share of national income. So the massive gamble that uh, Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss have taken is that this package not only boosts the economy in the short term, which it will, but also has longer term Sort of reviving qualities to the u k economy in the medium term, which most people think frankly it won't particularly it'll just cut taxes, make our debt unstable, and uh, make it more expensive to finance and that is the really huge risk as George says, this is you know they have convictions on this, they think this is exactly the way to revive the economy, and they've been willing to give it a go it's a massive gamble we'll see. Now, let's unpack each of the big measures in
1: here, George, and the rabbit out of the hat, if we think back to the days of when George Osborne was chancellor, you, you and I would spend a lot of time trying to figure out those rabbits, and nobody saw this one coming, that there'd been talk about income tax, something coming in, potentially VET, lots of kites had been flown in the run-up to this, but quasi Cotton announced the top rate of tax, the 45p rate for biggest earners, would be removed entirely. A very bold move and one that, of course, allows the opposition to say that this is going to benefit the rich. But the argument goes back to the old Conservative idea of the Laffer curve that if you get rid of that top rate of tax, it will pay for itself
0: with more people contributing. What do you make of it? The Treasury would say, well, just going back to the rate of taxation we had during the Tony Blair era, having a 40% rate of top tax on the highest earners, I think the reason nobody saw this coming is because we're probably locked in an old way of thinking, you know, thinking that politicians, would they really want to cut the taxes of people earning more than £150,000 in the middle of a cost-of-living crisis? Well, this lot of politicians do, partly down to the Laffer curve, but generally about putting up a massive, we are open for business, we want people to become rich and successful, we want them to come and invest in the UK. And it was fascinating, I was over in New York this week covering Liz Truss's visit to the United Nations, and she used a speech at the UN General Assembly normally where you focus on international affairs, to put up a big open for business sign over the UK and say that all Western democracies need to do the kind of thing we're doing, which is to stimulate growth, get the economy moving. And that in that way, we can take on the autocracies of, um, of Russia and China. So it's part of a big, big vision that they have. But whether it works, is, um, as we were discussing, is a, is a different question.
1: Now, some of the other measures, Chris, we had there. So first of all, the income tax cut, the basic rate 1P that Rishi Sunak, the former chancellor, was due to bring in 2024 as a sort of sugar rush ahead of a potential general election. That's going to come in a year earlier. Plus, we've also got a big cut in stamp duty as well, which is to try and stimulate the housing market, help first-time buyers, people of my generation who struggle to get the money together for stamp duty cut. And something we had during the COVID pandemic as well. What do you, what do you make of those measures?
3: Well, you put them all- together. And we have this sort of 45 billion pound tax cut, I think you should put them all together. Clearly, those who pay the most tax will get the most benefit, particularly at the top end, because that's where most people pay the most tax. And the hope is that this will put life into the economy more generally. What it will certainly do is boost incomes, relative to where they were anyway, and probably boost growth, and almost certainly boost inflationary pressure. Because We have full employment in the country at the moment. It isn't that there's loads of slack. And so if you cut taxes, you get back to normal. We're at a point where we've got high inflation. The Bank of England is worried about high inflationary pressure. If you give people more money, they'll spend more. That makes that pressure harder and higher. And that means interest rates are going to have to go up just today. So following the meeting, the market expectation for interest rates next June is over 5%. And that is a rate we haven't seen since before the financial crisis. It is not a rate that people will find comfortable. And it's certainly not a rate that companies would think, hey, this is the time to invest. It's really cheap to invest. So they might be getting more of their money back in corporate tax if they make profits, but they'll have to pay it to banks for the cost of borrowing. So this is what economists call crowding out. Government spends so much money, it crowds out private sector investment. And, you know, so the government's taking this gamble. It's saying, these tax cuts will only do the things that we think are good and it won't do any of the things that economists think are bad. They just do not accept their trade-offs in the economy and that is quite dangerous.
1: Well, it's interesting that we did see that quasi Kwarteng said that, the, of course, the energy package, he reckons, will take a good couple of points off inflation. But as you said, the market reaction to this announcement was quite something to watch on Friday morning.
3: Absolutely. So, I mean, it does take quite a few points, about five points off inflation in the short term. But that's different from the pressure for inflation in the long term, we never thought inflation was going to stay above 10% for that long, because uh, it was always a peak due to energy prices. The big question for the Bank of England and for the inflation is where it settles. And if you pump a load of money into the economy it's not going to settle at two, it's going to settle somewhere considerably higher than that. And then the Bank of England's job is to clamp down on the economy, create a recession. That's exactly what the Fed is doing in the US so that you get inflation down. I mean, Another way of putting it, I don't think the Liz Trust's government would like to see this comparison, but this is exactly what Joe Biden's government did when they came into office in 2021. They pumped a huge amount of money into the US economy to recover from COVID on the basis that creating a high-pressure economy was good for everyone, and then they found that actually the constraints were rather closer than they had imagined and what it generated was inflation. And that's the market fear. So we've seen sterling get very close to 110 against the dollar. We've seen the cost of government borrowing at two-year basis is now 3.9%. A year ago, it was 0.4%. The same has happened at a 10-year basis. So government is going to find it not only expensive because of these tax cuts, but it's going to find the additional borrowing is massively more expensive than it thought as well.
1: Now, George, let's have a look at some of the reaction to this. So obviously, after Kwasi Kwarteng spoke in the chamber to a lot of heckling, normally, these fiscal events and budgets are sort of quite tame affairs, but there was an awful lot of rowdiness here. And some of this came, of course, from the Labour benches. This is what Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, had to say.
0: Instead of standing up for working people, the Conservatives chose to shield the gigantic wall windfall profits of the energy giants, yeah, yeah. leaving tens of billions of pounds on the table and pushing all of the costs onto government borrowing, to be paid for by current and future taxpayers. The Prime Minister and Chancellor have no regard for taxpayers' interests or for the concerns of working (laughs) people. It's not just the Conservative Party is not working for ordinary families, it is actively working against them.
1: So we've got a big dollop of class warfare there, George, which you might expect, given the fact that tax cuts, as as Chris was just saying, are targeted at the top end of the spectrum. And through our conventional political lens, we would say, well, of course, this will be bad for the government because people will look at this and say it's helping the better off during a cost of living crisis when people are struggling with food and energy and all that sort of thing. But Maybe we are wrong. Maybe, maybe in fact that they will get this growth, getting backups towards the two point five percent quasi Kwarteng talked about, and maybe
0: people won't care. Maybe that's there's always a possibility that could happen, and obviously that's the government's expectation. I think one of the reasons you heard a lot of heckling of quasi-quarting was essentially he was, in the course of his budget statement or mini budget statement, he was basically trashing. The record of the Tory government over the last decade or so, wasn't he? He was basically saying, We're now in a new era and we have a totally different. Just imagine George Osborne saying this. It was precisely the opposite of what he used to say. Precisely. Just almost like the, the, the last 10 years didn't exist. On the face of it, the government has taken a load of political decisions which leave them exposed to very obvious attacks from the Labour Party. So, by, for example, cutting the additional rate of taxation and removing the cap on bankers' bonuses, they're open to the old allegation that they're the party of the rich, by sweeping away environmental regulations, including on fracking. They are in danger of damaging their own positive record on the environment under Boris Johnson. And so on the face of it, you know, Labour have got an open goal there, you would think. I mean, I just say that there are a couple of potential pitfalls and traps there for Labour, and I think Labour are aware of them. One is that Labour will now be asked, will you reverse these tax cuts? And, of course, then there's a, the Tories will try to present them in the next election as a party of higher taxation. So I think that's, that's a problem. And then the other thing that the, the, the Conservatives plan to do will be to create a framework about are you for or anti-growth? And I think they'll try and present the Labour Party if they oppose these measures, as I'm sure they will, as being the anti-growth party.
1: Well, you mentioned, Chris, there that George Osborne could never imagine doing this. Let's hear from Mel Stride, who is actually a Treasury Minister under George Osborne and now chairs the Select Committee examining the UK's economy. Don't think he was entirely happy with the package.
4: The ambition here is to
0: get growth up to its trend uh, before the financial crisis of about 2.5% a year and we're an awfully long way from that and we haven't managed to achieve those kind of levels of growth consistently for well over a decade. So it seems to me that simply dropping taxes
3: is certainly not going to achieve that but it may be that the Chancellor has something to tell us this morning um, that makes economists sit up and feel, yes, we're going to get back to 2.5%, we're going to do it fairly quickly.
1: I don't know if you're sitting up and feeling that, Chris, but this is really the fundamental question that, this whole mini-budget comes from a very particular ideological space in Westminster of people who are very much to the right of politics associated with think tanks like the Institute for Economic Affairs, the Centre for Policy Studies, the Taxpayers' Alliance. For the past 12 years, they've always argued this is what should have been done, what they might call a truly conservative approach towards the economy by really focusing on the small state. Now, George Osborne didn't do that. Philip Hammond didn't do that. Sajid Javid, Rishi Sunak. They've all taken a much more centrist approach and in a way this is like a big experiment because they've all said that people from that particular melee of thought if we do this we'll get growth up and that will help everyone and we don't need to worry about inequality we don't need to worry about redistribution because if you've got more growth the pie is bigger even if it's not being shared more equally that's this we've got to but it just does raise this big question about if it does work then as i said we'll all be proven wrong if it doesn't work then what happens
3: Well, we won't know for many, many years because you can get growth in the short term by spending a lot of money, and I presume that is what is going to happen, to some extent at least, unless the Bank of England really gets very tough with the government themselves, and that will cause a really difficult... In terms of rates? In terms of rates, you know, and that would cause a, a really quite a constitutionally difficult situation where if the central bank unelected is pulling very hard against the elected politicians. That's not going to be easy to get through. But the longer-term growth rate is just really difficult. I mean, I'm of the view that, you know, there's quite big structural reasons why the UK economy has not grown nearly as fast as it did before the financial crisis. Uh, We grew quite fast in parts of the last decade. we increased employment a lot. We don't have actually terribly bad regulations or internationally doesn't is we'd never come high up the you've got really stupid regulations, league tables. Uh, So it's quite hard to see exactly what levers you can pull quickly when you know that some of the big things that are wrong with the UK economy, skills, corporate investment levels, etc are not necessarily going to be effective that much by just having lower taxes. And if you have higher interest rates, it makes it quite difficult for companies to think, is this the place we're really going to invest in? This is going to be quite costly, quite risky, maybe quite a de- uh, not a very stable economy. You could say, you know, if by taking a non-orthodox view, it's a little bit like President Erdogan in Turkey. So saying, we're right, you're wrong. Markets, you're wrong. This is the way to improve the economy. Massive gamble.
1: And of course, the other historical parallel that's being drawn is not with Nigel Lawson and his big 1988 tax cutting budget, but it was, of course, Anthony Barber in 1970, who was Ted Heath's chancellor, who came in with a dash for growth, which has very similar rhetoric and approach to this. And it all fell apart a couple of years later because you got that sugar rush you talked about there of growth, but then it all fell apart Obviously, different circumstances. The economy was much more manufacturing-based. You had much stronger trade unions that led to big industrial unrest there. But there is historical precedent that this is probably not going to solve the UK's economic woes.
3: Well, no. I mean, I think, the, I think we can say we're not that far from the early 1970s. That is the best historical precedent. And while inflation went up to about 25% then, uh, and that was a lot to do with the first OPEC energy crisis, the Yom Kippur War, but, well, you know, we've got a war in Ukraine. We've got someone who's playing politics with gas prices at the moment in the world. These are very, very similar. And that ended up in 1976 with the UK going cap in hand to the IMF because no one was willing to lend us money. Now, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't, but I do think that markets are going to maybe... That I think the government might find when it finally publishes an actual forecast from its forecaster who will tell us how much the debt burden is likely to cost in their view. These figures might look really scary and then you can get into some really difficult situations where markets say, you know, actually the UK's a risky place. It's not where we want to put our money.
1: Now finally George what does this all tell us about Liz Trust because we're still very early into this new government and of course the death of the Queen sort of put all politics on hold for a while. That she won the Tory leadership contest with 57% of the vote and less, far less than half the number of MPs within the party and people have questioned what is your mandate for doing this big shake-up because this is a big break with what Boris Johnson was doing and the 2019 manifesto and, you know, I've been speaking to people in Trust World on Friday morning, and the two sentiments I got from them number one is her view is go big or go home, to quote one of her allies. Another person said that essentially her view is we've got two years to the next election. At the current trajectory, the Conservative Party is going to lose it. Therefore, we might as well do this stuff, which Liz Truss and Quasi Kwatang do deeply believe in. It's not oh. entirely cynical, you know, because to go back to Chris's sugar rush point, you do all this, you get a burst of growth, you come to another election say, we've got the economy growing, don't let Labour risk it, they're going to jack up taxes and put it all badly wrong again. But the other thing that someone said to me that Liz Truss's attitude is to move fast and break things, which might not be too
0: reassuring to lots of people across the country. Possibly not. And I think you, you mentioned the sort of fairly narrow mandate. There was a narrower margin of victory over Rishi Sunak in the final round than many people expected. And certainly her level of support in the parliamentary party wasn't as significant as you might Hope, if you were a prime minister about to move fast and break things, what would it sound? It sounded on the TV
3: like there wasn't the normal support from the Conservative benches behind the Chancellor. Is that was
0: if you, you were in the chamber? Yes, I was. George. I was in the chamber. I mean, it's it's always very hard to tell. I mean, certainly when he got to the point where he announced the abolition of the additional rate of income tax, there wasn't the wholehearted sort of bring the house down cheer that one might have expected. And I think that reflected some of the nervousness in the party. And I think the just going back to the sort of the mandate she has, I think the problem is that they will give us some time, but probably not that much time. Because if we get into the next year, inflation's still causing problems, interest rates, as Chris was mentioning, start to go up. People will start to get nervous, particularly people who supported Rishi Sunak and the more traditional Tory economic orthodoxy. And then you start to get into difficulty. People will be looking over their shoulders at the election coming coming over the horizon. Are they going to lose their seats? People start to brief people like me and you, Seb, about uh, their concerns about the government. And quickly, you could see discipline breaking down. And Liz trust Hope will hope that there will be some good luck will come around the, over the horizon. Maybe the war in Ukraine will end quicker than people thought. Maybe gas prices won't peak at the level some people have predicted. But, you know, there's a lot of finger-crossing going on, I think, in number 10 about this.
1: George and Chris, thank you very much. Away from the major economic news, the Trust government focused on its other policy priority this week, the health service. With ambulance times soaring, patients struggling to get appointments and fears of another major crisis this winter, the NHS is already shaping up to be a defining issue for the new Prime Minister she's turned to Therese Coffee, who's the new health secretary and her deputy, to put a plan together to tackle the backlogs and blockages. She told the House of Commons on Thursday that the solution would be categorised as ABCD. Ambiences, backlogs, care, doctors, and for good measure, dentists.
5: The backlog. Where the waiting list for planned
1: care currently stands at about 7 million, exacerbated by the pandemic. To boost capacity... We are accelerating our plans to roll out community diagnostic centres as well as new hospitals. And we will maximise the use of the independent
5: sector to provide even more treatment for patients.
1: Well, Sarah Neville, welcome back to the podcast. Fantastic to have you back on. Let's begin with the situation in the health service. As I said at the beginning, it's fairly dire. Is that how you would characterise
5: this? I would. If you look at the metrics, I mean, the most overwhelming metric is that there are now about 7 million people waiting for non-urgent hospital care. And despite the non-urgent moniker, some of them will be in a lot of pain, it will be, you know, perhaps, whatever their condition is, perhaps is preventing them working as they'd like to... Hips, knees,
1: that sort of thing.
5: Exactly. And that is a record. The NHS is very good at records, it seems, these days. This waiting list rises inexorably every month. And the situation is such that some patients, I was very struck talking to a doctor recently who said to me, some patients are literally having their entire care in the A&E department. They literally never make it out of the emergency department. They would normally be receive initial treatment there and then be taken into the body of the hospital but there simply aren't the beds so this bottleneck is keeping people you know perhaps on trolleys or you know in very undesirable circumstances in A&D they're having their whole treatment and then being released without ever seeing the inside of the main hospital.
1: Now, Therese Coffey put out this new plan, which I said was categorised in those four letters. This is obviously not any kind of reform or big overhaul. The government doesn't have the capacity or the mandate to really do that. So what exactly is the new health secretary going to do?
5: In a way, perhaps what's surprising, given how radical Liz Truss has been in other areas, and certainly the rhetoric has been extremely radical, really Therese Coffey's announcement on Thursday, and we got some of it on Wednesday, has really been quite conventional, sort of more of the same. The two main planks were the commitment, if we can term it a commitment, there's a bit of uncertainty about whether it is a full-blown target, but certainly the expectation, to use her word, that anyone who wants a GP appointment should get one within two weeks. Well, that perhaps hardly, to our listeners, sounds like an amazing concession, if you've got to wait two weeks. But nevertheless, one in five patients are waiting more than two weeks. So it is actually a new commitment that will be quite challenging for general practice to implement. But at the same time, it's another target. In fact, Jeremy Hunt, the former health secretary, pointed out that I think he said it was the 73rd target to which the NHS has been subject. And, you know, he basically said, we don't need more targets, we need more doctors. And that, I think, gets to the heart of the issue about lack of workforce. But just to to finish on her statement, the other big announcement was a £500 million fund that will make it easier to discharge patients from hospital into social care. But again, that's very much building on the scheme that proved very effective during the pandemic. So none of this is taking the NHS in a radical new direction, even though some of it may be genuinely challenging for the NHS to deliver.
1: Well, Clive Cookson, it's wonderful to have you back on the podcast as well. And we did so much time, the three of us speaking through the joys of the COVID pandemic sitting in our respective spare bedrooms. So it's wonderful to see your faces both here. But that does remind us that a lot of this was caused by COVID, the backlogs that added huge amounts of pressures. Where are we at with the pandemic? Because it was US President Joe Biden who declared this week, I think that COVID was over and there's been a bit of backlash against that. What's the situation that you and how does it play into the healthcare situation? There's been great
4: backlash in the US against Biden's statement about all the health people in his administration. And the World Health Organization said on Thursday that the pandemic is far from over. In the UK, we seem to be at more or less a low point in infections. They've been falling since early summer. But I think all the sort of epidemiologists and people who study the figures feel that it's beginning to rise again from this low point. The Office of National Statistics infection Survey is at its low point. Some people think it's going to rise quite rapidly. It all depends what variants emerge. But even if no really nasty new variants emerge. And surprisingly, all variants that have been around for the last year have been daughters or sons of Omicron. But even if there are no nasty new variants, Omicron itself is evolving, and there's a cyclicality to this infection, this disease, because people's immune resistance wanes, even though there is now an autumn booster campaign for people at high risk and older people, the take up of that is not at the moment very high. So all the signs are that during the autumn, COVID is going to either creep back or roar back and add to those problems that Sarah was talking about for the health service. Well, that's something
1: we can all look forward to. Now, let's hear what the Labour Party had to say about the government's announcement. This is Wes Streeting, the Shadow Health Secretary, who you'll be very surprised to hear was not in favour.
4: If there were any evidence needed that this is a government and a party that is out of ideas, out of times, and out of a clue as to scale of the challenge facing our country, it is this statement. The NHS is facing the worst crisis it has ever seen. Patients waiting longer than ever before in A&E. Stroke and heart attack victims waiting an hour for an ambulance. 378,000 patients waiting more than a year for an operation. And that was the summer.
1: Now this is obviously where streeting Sarah contrasting what the Labour Party did, which of course was obviously quite a long time ago, where the population was different, we hadn't gone through the COVID pandemic, treatments and funding were in a very different space. But it's not as if the health service doesn't have enough money for this, an awful lot of money has been poured in by Jeremy Hunt, who talked about the former health secretary, and by successive conservative governments, it feels as if there is a very specific bureaucratic problem. And this issue of the workforce in particular, has been a real challenge. So when you're assessing that, if we were jump forward to say this time next year, of course, when we're starting to be thinking about the next general election, what can the government realistically do to improve the situation, all those things? Because if West Streeting can make those attacks in an election campaign, then the Tories will be in a very difficult
5: spot. One thing they can't easily do is magic up the 132,000 additional staff they need to fill all the vacancies. But they will, I think, try to ramp up recruitment from overseas, which, of course, carries sensitivities in itself because we have to be careful about denuding countries poorer and more disadvantaged than our own of staff that they desperately need. But nevertheless, I think within the boundary of you know, trying not to do that, the government will definitely be looking to increase overseas recruitment. The other thing, which again, perhaps underpins some of Therese Coffey's statement, is the notion of using existing staff in rather different ways. So she talked about pharmacists being able to prescribe the contraceptive pill without going through a GP. She talked about having different kinds of staff working in general practice. So there would be more GP assistants who are people who do some of the sort of low level clinical work and also the admin and advanced nurse practitioners. These are categories of staff who've not characteristically been funded from within general practice, but which can clearly ease the pressure on GPs and reserve the GP's time for the people who really need it. But some of this will involve us as patients acknowledging we can't always see the GP. We may see one of these other members of the practice. And that's going to be quite a hard sell, I think, to, to patients.
1: Usually. Now that segues nice nicely into another issue, Clive, that the government's dealing with, which is science as a broad thing. Number one, at the time of recording on, on Thursday, we don't have a science minister. And George Freeman, the former of an enthusiastic science minister, was in that post before and he's not yet been replaced. I think there might be some questions about whether there are Individuals keen enough to take up the post, shall we say. But then this also has played into a row about Horizon and the UK's post Brexit participation in the EU science wide programme. So, can you just take us through what the government's thinking on
4: science is in the trustee era? Talking to scientists, the number one problem is they're not thinking much about science. Liz Truss, by all accounts, is not particularly interested in science. Jacob Rees Mogg, the new business secretary, under whose department science and R&D fall. is not particularly interested in science. He, he's more interested in energy. And no one to push for some sort of resolution to the sort of R&D problem, because the EU is not letting the UK take part, as the UK wants, in its 95 billion euro Horizon Europe R&D programme. This is one European programme. UK governments have been very keen to continue taking a role in. And indeed, as part of the dispute resolution that they've triggered over the Northern Ireland Protocol, they have specifically asked the EU to explain why science should be linked in some way to Northern Ireland Protocol. There were talks in Brussels on Thursday about this. And as we speak, no resolution. I think In practice, most scientists would be very surprised if there were a sort of magic solution before the whole Northern Ireland protocol issue is settled, possibly by Easter, if we believe Liz Truss's words in New York. Well, at that point, I just want to hear from Lord
1: David Frost, who was obviously Boris Johnson's Brexit negotiator. And he's highlighted exactly why these two disputes are linked.
0: We agreed that we would participate in this in the TCA, and we agreed to pay a contribution, which is likely to be £15 billion over seven years. The TCA is clear. The UK, and I quote, shall participate, and the relevant protocol, I quote again, shall be adopted. That is an obligation. If it were to become clear the EU did not intend to deliver upon that obligation, and it has not done so so far, or simply to delay Sinedia, we would, of course, regard the EU as in breach of Article 710 of the TCA.
1: Now, on that point, Clive, the UK has triggered this dispute resolution about participation within Horizon. Now, we've got the Northern Ireland Protocol issue, which we've spent many hours talking about on this podcast, and we won't go there today. But... Do you see any route through this without the Northern Ireland Protocol being resolved? And if you were to look into your
4: crystal ball, do you think we'll end up staying in Horizon? George Freeman, the former science minister, was putting together what he called Plan B, which was going to be a UK-led international research programme with global participation into which the Treasury would put the same sort of amount as it was going to allocate to Horizon Europe participation, many billions of pounds. But the trouble is that doesn't have the same prestige and there's something called the European Research Council, which British researchers are particularly missing, just both the collaboration and also the imprimatur of what's quickly become regarded as the world's sort of leading research funding organisation. My crystal ball, I think there'll be some sort of fudge The UK government is saying that it'll pay for UK researchers to take part in Horizon Europe projects, which they can as so-called third parties, but they don't have any say really then in the formulation of the projects, let alone their leadership. So there will be some sort of fudge, and I imagine that Plan B will be implemented at some stage. But, I mean, who knows? Now, finally, with our experts in your
1: particular areas, very early days, Sarah and Clive, but I'm going to ask you to give you marks out of 10 for what you're seeing from the Trust Government for health and for science. Sarah?
5: Seven. I'll go for a solid seven.
4: Very strong. Clive? That is generous, Sarah. I'm afraid I can't objectively give them more than four. Well very
1: much work in progress on the science front Sarah and Clive it's wonderful to have you both back on thanks for joining us and that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics if you like the podcast then we'd recommend subscribing you know where to find us through all the usual channels to receive those episodes every Saturday morning we also like a positive review and nice rating Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Howie Shannon. The sound engineers were Breen Turner and Yang Sigsworth. Until next time, thanks for listening.
3: When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all.